It's the Gardener Tip of the Week podcast, uh, where we spend time chatting with expert gardening guests and we ask for their favorite tip. I'm Christy Wilhelmy. Thanks for joining me. Our guest this week is Greg Peterson of the Urban Farm in Phoenix, Arizona. Greg is a permaculturist and green living innovator specializing in urban sustainability and growing food on dry lands. The Urban Farm features an entirely edible landscape, more than 70 fruit trees, solar power, water catchment and gray water systems, and a lot more. Welcome to the podcast, Greg. Thanks. Oh my gosh, we are going to have so much fun today. I know, I can feel it already. Right? The yeah. air is crackling. Uh, so, you know, I'm curious because Arizona is one of the more challenging places to grow, I imagine. <laughs> right? But yeah. you've been there for almost 50 years. So, before we get into like what it's like to grow there, let's start with you and your journey and what, what started you on this path to the, to creating the urban farm? The best thing I can say is that I was born with it Mm. in the eighth grade. It was 1974. I wrote a paper on how we were overfishing the oceans. I have no idea as an eighth grader where that came from, except I was really into Jacques Cousteau back then. Mm -hmm. And I planted my first garden in 1975 so I've been gardening here in Dryland since 1975, and I've always thought differently. As you can imagine, as an eighth grader writing a paper on overfishing the oceans, my <laughs> gosh, where does that come from? Who knows? Right. And then in 1981, I designed on paper, because back then I was on the board, I was 20 years old, and I was on the board of the Arizona Aquaculture Association. And one of the things that we would do is we would visit farms around the state. So I got to see firsthand how farms worked and how much waste there was on farms. And, you know, they'd clean the fish and they would throw away 70% of the fish because, you know, it was bones and that kind of stuff. And it just didn't make sense to me. So I actually still have the paperwork that shows graphics and words, written words on what we would now call a regenerative farm. Oh, cool. Where everything got used in the farm. So that was 1981. Fast forward to 1991, and several major things hit me that that year. First of all, I discovered permaculture. Permaculture is the art and science of working with nature. And for me, it was like, oh my gosh, there's actually something that I can call the way that I think Remember 10 years early in a regenerative food, you know, farm and that kind of stuff. And then I read Ishmael by Daniel Quinn. Uh, For your listeners out there, go check out that book, Ishmael by Daniel Quinn. You'll either love it and it'll change your life forever or you'll hate it and it'll change your life forever. (laughs) Um, The third thing that happened in 91 was I attended a seminar called the Advanced Course at Landmark Education where they had me create a vision for my life. So 91, I'm 30 years old. And the vision that came up for me was that I'm the person on the planet responsible for transforming our global food system. Ooh, that's a big job. It is, but it doesn't, you know, the way we framed it out, it's not a job. For me, it is what, it, what gets me up in the morning. Mm-hmm. It's your and why. It's my why, exactly. Yeah. So that, from that perspective, it's very empowering. First of all, I'm really clear that, first of all, I can't do this alone. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I don't want to do it alone. It takes a conversation. So that's the conversation that we're building out. Then the fourth thing that happened for me in 1991, this was a very pivotal year for me. A friend of mine went sailing in the South Pacific, and they they anchored at at an island looking for a grocery store. And the people that lived there kind of looked at them funny and said, "Um, go pick your own. 
Mm-hmm. And he came back to me and he shared that. And between Ishmael and that, it's like, holy shamoles. Yeah. Food used to be for free. And in Quinn's words, our culture locked it up. So that's that's the quick 20, 30 years. And then in, in 2001, I was at Arizona State University getting my bachelor's degree. I had to write a mission and vision for my life. Out of that came the urban farm. I've been here for 32 years. It's a third of an acre in North Central Phoenix. And I bought it because I wanted a garden. A third of an acre. Okay, go yeah. on. And so I uh, created my this concept of an environmental showcase home. And really, it's an environmental showcase yard mm-hmm. on, that's completely <laughs> edible. And as you mentioned in my bio, it's, uh, you know, there's fruit trees and water harvesting and solar panels and green building and chickens in the backyard and you know, it's a, you'd call it a homestead. I like to call it an environmental showcase home so that I open it up periodically for people to come in and take a look, see what you can do. That's, that's it in a nutshell. And quite a nutshell it is. <laughs> so you, you did describe, you already started to expand on what I described uh, about your farm, but let's go a little deeper because okay. for those who aren't familiar with Arizona, can you describe the hardiness zone and like how much rain you get and you know, those kinds of things that make it dry lands. <laughs> yeah. So hardiness zone, I think it's nine. Mm-hmm. I've never much paid attention to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so nine ish we get on a good year, nine inches of rain on a bad year. Like last year, we got four and a half inches of rain. Yeah. Uh, it's hot and dry. One of the things that's happened the past three or four years, and I've lived in Phoenix since 1967 And one of the new things in our climate here is the winds. So it used to just be windy a little bit in March and April. And the past couple of years, it's been windy in March, April. Okay, and then we got into our hundreds. So in May, we had hot winds. And now it's June, and we have hot, hot, hot winds. And what I'm starting to see is that plants are desiccating. They're just dehydrating from the outside in and so that we're we're now looking for special ways to keep our fruit trees from dying right well that was my next question what practices are you implementing because there i know a lot of people are growing in places where water is scarce including Mm -hmm. the you know bulk of my clients here in los angeles where we got I think three and a half inches of rain last year too. So we're in the same, we're in the same boat and the fire, the wildfires have started early. So that combination of heat and winds really scares most of us here. I should mention dear listeners that we are recording this conversation in June of 2021 before the wildfire season has really gotten heartily underway, but it's already started. So you must be really honing in on what needs to be done. What practices are you implementing in order to grow in in that climate? Yeah. So you want the full extent of it? (laughs) Sure. Let's go. All right. Cool. So, uh, you know, about five years ago, we started to notice that uh, the tree care practices that we were teaching weren't enough. And so we start, I started digging in to see what kind of tree care practices would benefit the trees. Now, I'm not just talking about fruit trees. I'm really talking about plants, any plants that you're planting in the ground. And so four or five years ago, we started adding azomite and mycorrhiza mm-hmm. to the planting hole. So what we encourage people to do is dig your dig your round hole 
I got a story about that here in a minute, but dig your round hole and take 40% of the dirt out of the hole and put it in a wheelbarrow, then 60% planting mix, some kind of organic matter, compost, cocoa peat, um, that kind of stuff in the wheelbarrow and mix it up and then add an ounce of mycorrhiza, which is uh, soil life, a pound of azomite, which is a micronutrient vitamin pill for your tree, and a pound of worm castings. And so that was our first stab at a extreme tree care. So mix all that up, get your tree planted, and you're good to go, kind of. <laughs> so then the next step happened just a little bit after that when I developed something called my 6-6 six, six rule. Okay, and what is the 6-6 six, six rule? There you go. In... In my teachings about fruit trees, I have rules and I have guidelines. So this is a rule. The 6-6 six, six rule is a six-inch deep basin with six inches of woody mulch. 8-8 uh -huh. eight, eight is better. 10-10 ten, ten is even better. What that woody mulch does is it creates a barrier between the soil underneath and the air above, and it very quickly starts breaking down, making really healthy soil. The feeder roots will come up through the woody mulch and into the woody mulch over the years and the tree will love you for it. Right. And it loves mulch. The mulch is a fungal food. So the microbes that you're adding and the existing soil microbes really love having mulch on top of them because they break right. it down and eat it. And exactly. Make better soil for all of us. So then in 2017, I get my little temperature gun out and go out in August and I start pointing it to the ground. And I realized that a bare ground in my front yard even a mulched bare ground was 140 to 150 degrees oh my God. at ground temperature. Wow. That's enough to kill your plants. It was 120 degrees, six inches down. Oh, again, my God. Again, wow. enough to kill, yeah, enough to kill your trees, right? Yeah. And so after discovering that heat, the magnitude of the heat there, mm -hmm. I pointed this heat temperature gun at the ground underneath my sweet potatoes. It was 89 degrees under the sweet potatoes. It was 89 degrees under the cowpeas. So step number two, after, you know, you put all that great stuff in the hole and then put your woody mulch down is to grow some kind of ground cover over the plant. Right. Or over the, over the woody mulch. So now you have six inches of woody mulch and you have cowpeas or sweet potatoes. The thing about the cowpeas and sweet potatoes is they have to be on the same watering schedule as your fruit trees. So you can't grow watermelons underneath them because your watermelons need water much more often than not. So that was, what, step three of this extreme? So step one was plant it right. Step two was a woody mulch base. And step three was um, grow some green ground cover. And step four, which came last year, was foliar feeding. Because, see, after doing all of the first step, three steps, we're still having fruit trees struggling here in the desert. And provide, you know, providing some kind of overhead shade is good. There's paid-for shade, which is some kind of structure you put up, or there's grown shade. So you definitely want to give the trees western shade. And so both Tom Spellman uh, from Dave Wilson Nursery and... Scott Murray from Murray Farms in San Diego both coached me to start getting our trees foliar fed. Foliar feeding is actually spraying some kind of fertilizer, usually kelp emulsion, fish emulsion, humates on to the leaves. That gets us up to date to last year. We're still having trees drying up. Oh, because of the hot winds and that kind of stuff. So our next step I'm starting to explore 
is, uh, so this is a really fun story. In 2004, I was at an urban farming conference at Fairview Gardens in Santa Barbara. Mm -hmm. And this guy talked about something called poo paint, P-O-O-P-A-I-N-T, poo paint. And I, you know, I jotted down, it's in the journal somewhere. I've looked for the dang journal. I've never been able to find it. And I was trying to figure out recently what the poo paint was, because basically what it was, it was a mixture of clay and manure and straw that gets slathered on the outside of trees to hold in moisture and give them nutrients through the tree trunk, right? Wow. I had a guy on my <laughs> podcast recently and he was talking, I'm getting chills as I'm sharing about this. He was talking about biodynamic tree pace. I said, oh, oh my gosh, that's what's a thing. that? <laughs> it's a thing. It's a thing. Poo paint, poo paint is actually a thing. So um, so now that's our next step to uh, take this extreme. And I know that was a very simple question, but that is the that is the the journey that we've been on over the past five years to see how we can make our plants thrive here in the desert. Well, those are all great techniques, and I think that any one of them would do wonders for trees and, and just gardens in general, and all of them together must be really helpful in a lot of ways. Yeah. One of the things that I do is I guarantee our fruit trees, mm -hmm. but people have to be in communication with me, So, uh, and communication means tell me what the, what's going on and send me pictures. And that's for when the trees are struggling, but also when the trees are thriving. And the way that the trees thrive these days with all of those steps in place is, is mind-blowingly amazing. So it's working. Excellent. Good to hear. You know, I think you may have already answered <laughs> some of my questions, or at least one of my questions with your what I'm going to call a guild, you know, you've put the sweet potatoes and the cow yes. peas under the trees. Mm -hmm. No, this, this kind of elusive term guild, it's a, it's a permaculture thing. You, you created the Phoenix permaculture guild in 2008. So let's talk about that a bit. And okay. this, this word guild, it is something, you know, I mean, it has a couple, it has a couple of different meanings, but I'm going to refer to it as a collection of plants that work well together while supporting the other plants in that guild. Perfect. And, Documented in books are mostly guilds that were developed for northern climates where they get lots of rain and gooseberries grow. And mm -hmm. I've really been trying to find guilds or talk to people like yourself to see if anybody has come up with guilds for our climates. Have you discovered any besides the sweet potatoes and cow peas, cow peas, cow peas that you've already implemented yeah. uh, that you're using in your climate? So I have a, a peculiar yard. Mm -hmm. I have I have something here called flood irrigation. Basically, I get six inches of water in my yard 22 times a year. It is a water right that was assigned to this piece of property uh, in the early 1900s when it was a citrus orchard. Okay. And so I have a very different property than people in the surrounding desert area. Mm -hmm. And the way, and so what, what I do here at the urban farm is I let things go to seed and let them grow. So there's a lot, always every day, there are dozens of things for me to go out and harvest in my yard. So for, for the guild of my yard, it's really just a food forest and I let it do what it does. If I'm stepping outside of my yard and going to a more desert space, uh, there are a lot of desert plants that do really well. So if I was designing a guild for the desert, I would start with a 
uh, native edible mesquite tree up top. And native mesquite trees can get 30, 20, 30, 40 feet tall. Mm-hmm. I'd have it be a single trunk. I'd plant it on the west side of something so that in the afternoon it casts shade to the east and that with that shade comes coolness. Mm-hmm. Uh, underneath that, I would place two or three or four fruit trees that are heavily mulched in. And underneath that, I would plant sweet potatoes, cow peas. Those are uh, the, the sweet potatoes are diggers. They like digging in the ground and uh, any sweet potatoes that you don't harvest, uh, come back. Will, they'll come back year after year after year. Exactly. Yep. And cow peas, which are a desert bean uh, that I originally got from native seed search down in Tucson about 15 years ago. We love uh, native seed search yes, here. They're right. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then the other thing that actually works really well, that it does need a little bit of water, um, but often this works really well in the wintertime is nasturtiums. And yes. so what happens is in the summertime, in the hotter times, on the same watering system that you have your trees on, the cow peas will grow and thrive. And one cow pea plant can be 10 by 10. Ooh, they okay. get huge and provide you with thousands of beans. And then as they're dying back in the in the winter, so they die back, b- both them and the sweet potatoes, they die back in November-ish when it gets mm-hmm. cold here. Mm-hmm. You know, it's cold for Phoenix, not cold for other parts of the country. <laughs> uh, the this, this nasturtiums pop up. Right. And the nasturtiums will fill up the space. And the nasturtiums are edible and as a flower, as a uh, leaf, uh, so you can eat them. And then the cow peas and sweet potatoes, when they die back, I just mulch them in. They become part of the mulch for uh, next year. The cow pe- the uh, nasturtiums grow all winter, and when they die off in April, May, and June, they get mulched in and so on and so on. So that's so that's what I've been playing with here. That is totally doable. Thank yeah. you for sharing that. Yeah. Uh, well, the, thing, the thing is, with permaculture... Uh, I like to call permaculture the art and science of working with nature. So how do we work in the flow of nature Mm -hmm. rather than against nature? And that one that I just explained to you, once you have your mesquite tree, which is your mother tree, your fruit trees planted, the stuff growing on the ground with lots of woody mulch, it's just a system that runs itself. Right. What there is for you to do is to go harvest food. Right. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I have planted, and I've mentioned this before to listeners, that I planted sweet potatoes six or seven years ago, and every Mm -hmm. year I get a couple Mm -hmm. of barrels full, bushels full of sweet potatoes because they just keep coming back. They're an invasive species here. They don't die off. Where uh, where warm where you have warm winters. So right. and that was a follow up question I had for you. Do you get a frost where you live and snow and stuff like that? Because I know there are parts of Arizona that do. We get a light snow about every fifteen years. Okay, so no, right? <laughs> Essentially exactly. no. <laughs> okay. um, we get from the fruit tree perspective, we get up to about three hundred hours of chill. Chill is anything under. 39 degrees. So we have to go with all low chill trees. Every three or four years, we'll get temperatures that get below freezing just for a night or two. But usually our temperatures are 32 to 38 degrees in the winter at night. Now you mentioned your fruit tree program. Uh, I saw on your website, in addition to your online courses, your podcast, videos, blog and you have a store you've got this fruit tree program and i'm super curious about that tell us how that works 
All right. Well, we're going to go back 22 years when I oh. discovered when I discovered you could go into most nurseries and every big box store and they would sell you a fruit tree that would never make fruit here. Right. Bogus. Because <laughs> of the chill hours, right? Well, actually three different factors, which I'll share with you in a minute. And so I started teaching people. Well, actually, it started a little bit before that. I, I was looking for 50 fruit trees to plant in a friend of mine's backyard and nobody would, none of the local nurseries had them or were interested in working with me. So I found Dave Wilson Nursery in 99 and I bought a hundred, hundred, that was the minimum order, a hundred trees. <laughs> I bought a hundred trees. So I had 50 in pots in my friend in 1999 and my friends started asking me, well, can I buy some? Mm-hmm. So I was off to the races. So uh, every year, starting in September, we offer free fruit tree classes online. Awesome. All kinds of them. It's mostly for desert areas, but if you go to fruittrees.org, you can find out all about our fruit tree program. And a lot of what I talk about could be used anywhere that you are in the world. But it, again, it's specific to Arizona and the low desert. And so the three things are chill hours. And big box stores will always carry trees that require more than 300 hours of chill. Yeah. It, it, it just doesn't fail. In fact, I was doing a TV uh, gig about a year and a half ago. And one of the things that we were talking about is what they sell in the big box store. So I actually went to the big box store before my TV gig. And of all of the things that we they were selling that were edible, mm-hmm. over 50% of them were not appropriate for our area. So they were either climate inappropriate or season inappropriate. So when you walk into a big box store, it's on you to figure out what's going to work and what's not. So you have to know going in. So chill hours was number one. Mm -hmm. Um, We need less than 300 hours here. Rootstock was number two. Often the big box stores will, you know, talk to a grower and they say, we'll take uh, a thousand uh, Santa Rosa plums on XYZ rootstock. I don't, XYZ is not a rootstock, but on this particular, on this particular kind of rootstock. Uh Well, that particular kind of rootstock may do great in Seattle, but it's not going to do great in Phoenix. Right. So the second thing you have to know is what rootstock are your trees on? And is it going to work in your area? Then for the desert, the third thing that is really, really important on the soft flesh fruit, apples, peaches, apricots, plums, grapes, berries, those kinds of things. If they're a variety that ripens after July 1st here in the desert, they just cook on the tree. Mm-hmm. So you can get a low chill pink lady apple, but it doesn't come ripe until the fall, which means that poor fruit has to be on the tree throughout the summer. And I took out my pink ladies. I took out my Einsheimers. I took out all those trees that were low chill, but they were in the fall mm-hmm. because I never got much of a harvest on them. So those are the three things that I've discovered over the years. And you can tell I have passion about it. And our fruit tree program, we give free classes throughout September, October, November. People can pre-order their trees for pickup here in Phoenix. So they're for low desert trees. And uh, then the trees come, we do a citrus pickup in October. So you come and get your citrus in October and you can come and get your deciduous trees in January. Um, And so my nursery called the Urban Farm Nursery. We're open about 20 days a year. That's it. Well, it sounds like a good gig, honestly. <laughs> Not that you aren't working the rest of the year. I yeah. know what it's like to have a gardening business. It's, so it's yeah, crazy. It's, it, it's fun. <laughs> and we, we sell between four and 5,000 plants a year. 
Wow. That's amazing. Well, we're going to link to the tree program and your website and all the classes that you're teaching too, uh, um, on the blog post that accompanies this podcast. So fear not dear listener, you will have all the information you need. And my next question is a little bit personal because Kat, when she emailed me uh, about having you on the podcast, she mentioned that you were diagnosed with Lyme's disease in 2014. And Mm -hmm. I I know that can be a really debilitating situation. So how has growing your own food helped you manage this illness or what it has been like to grow your own food while having it? Both questions apply. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm lucky. Mm -hmm. I have mild symptoms. One of the symptoms, for those of you that were on video right now, but uh, my hand is shaking. Yeah. My right hand is shaking pretty severely. It's neurological based, and it's mm-hmm. only affecting my right side. And so it's hard to write, hard to use a mouse. Um, the, other, the other symptom that I have is I hear cicadas 24-7. Right now, I hear cicadas in my head. Oh, wow. Right? So long story short, the only reason that I know that I have Lyme is because my partner Heidi was bit by a tick in 2014 in Phoenix, Arizona, and literally had to push the ER doc to get her tested. And it turns out she tested positive. So, and that was, she had a severe case of it. I thought we were going to lose her. Mm. And I went to the same practitioner she was using. And the practitioner asked me, Hey, have you been tested? Mm. Like, why would I be tested? And so I got tested, and it turns out I have chronic Lyme going back 20 years. Wow. And, yeah, so one of the big pieces, and the food thing for me predates all of this, but one of the big pieces of taking care of any chronic disease is make sure that you eat really, 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 really well. Mm -hmm. And so I've been organic 32 years here at the Urban Farm. Uh, We grow 10 to 30% of our own food here, and... I say that growing your own food, I know what's in it. I know that it's the best that it's going to be. Mm-hmm. It's going to be picked right at the prime of ripeness so that it's most nutrient dense for me. And I personally believe that that lifestyle of eating good, healthy, organic food, and when we're not harvesting it out of the yard, we're eating all organic. I can get an indication if I eat something that's out of place. If I go to a fast food restaurant, if I do something like that, it can literally hit me. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like I have a hangover. I feel, you know, yucky. With the lime, unfortunately, I love, I love wine. I absolutely love red wine. With the lime, I can't, I can't drink wine anymore mm. uh, just because I'm so sensitive to things that are outside. And if that may, may be the lime, it also may be that I've eaten so clean for so long. So there's, there's all of that. And then there's the other piece of, you know, you're sitting, seeing me sitting here in front of my computer, which I do about eight hours a day. I will get up and go out into the yard. I'll pull weeds. It's my, my garden is my respite from having to sit in front of the computer. Same here. That's certainly right? true here. And certainly yeah. during COVID, it was the solace, the soul-saving mm-hmm. grace to have a garden to walk out around, you know, and just commune with some other living thing. Amen <laughs> even, to that. Even right. if it didn't talk back to you. Right. Yeah. It was pretty amazing. Well, Thank you for it, letting me share that story. Of course. Here's, here's the key piece to that. Lime is everywhere in the United States. Like I said, she had to browbeat the emergency room doctor to get tested. Yeah. 
The doctors in Phoenix still don't believe that it exists here in Phoenix. It, uh, recently, there was a article that they're finding Lyme ticks on the beaches in California. Oh, good to know. Because yeah. we go, we have a beach really close by. <laughs> right. So what you need to know about Lyme is when you get bit by a tick, often what you get is this bullseye rash. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a bullseye rash on your arm. Heidi actually had that in 2014. If we would have known in the spring what that was, we could have treated her with antibiotics. But once Lyme gets established in your body, it is a spirochete bacteria. It screws itself into your biofilms, your body fat, and your muscle. It's really hard to get rid of. So if you end up, this is, if you take away nothing else from this whole conversation, if you get a bullseye rash, it is Lyme disease. And if you get it before it gets chronic, treat it with antibiotics. I'm not a doctor. Go right, to a doctor. Just do go it. A doctor, but you can get it treated with antibiotics. Yeah. That, and, and I know from experience with a, a relative who had Lyme's disease that it is the kind of thing that is the last thing they test you for. They'd look for everything else. It mimics exactly. everything else. And so they yep. go for the, all the tests for everything else. And the Lyme's disease is the last thing. And so by that time yeah. it's already, if right. And that, by then it's already taken hold. So it's one of those things you really have to do your research on and get, get tested for right away. Yeah. So thank you for sharing that. I appreciate yeah, absolutely. It. And well, I'm passionate about all that I do, but that's, that is a big piece of it. It's because if we would have known Literally, I thought we were going to lose Heidi in the fall of 2014. We had her in the hospital. She had seven different doctors that claimed that she couldn't have Lyme while she was in the hospital after she had two. Yeah, so just know that it's it's important. If you get a bullseye bite, Mm -hmm. go get tested for Lyme. Don't let them tell you no. Good tip. And that, and, and that segues us into tip time <laughs> because it is <laughs> tip time and you shared a lot of great advice already, but do you have a favorite tip that you'd like to share with the garden nerd audience? A um, couple of them. Okay. And number one is herbs are the most expensive thing to buy in the store and the easiest thing to grow. You can grow them in a sunny windowsill. Grow basil. I almost always have basil growing here at the Urban Farm, and we use it multiple times a week. We had a pasta dish last night, and Heidi said to me, oh, I need basil. I went out in front, and I cut some basil. Side note, are you growing any perennial basils that you like? They, with the heat here... Not so much? Usually the heat kills them in the summertime. Okay. So the nice thing about, for me is that, again, they go to seed and they just come back up year after year after year. Mm-hmm. Um, I, would, I would love to find a perennial basil that grows well here. Um, we were just having this conversation in one of the garden groups because somebody posted, said, How, who can get basil to grow year over year? And I said, in the desert, it dies every year because of the heat. And then several people chimed up and said, uh, excuse me, I'm in the desert and it works just fine here. And I laughed at myself and I said, uh, well, there you go. Once right. you have a... And this, this is the other thing. Once you have decided on something, be open to that could be different. That's a good idea. I like that yeah. tip. <laughs> yeah. uh, I know that, and we could, I feel like we can I'm totally 
sending us off on a tangent here, but it's a good tangent. Trust me. Uh, <laughs> the, the basil tangent, because a, a number of people want to grow basil in the winter here and it doesn't really do it just, it's a warm season crop and it wants the warmth to grow and it tends to not do well. And people try buying the little plant from Trader Joe's and it dies mm -hmm. immediately. And I'm like, that's cause it's not supposed to grow this time of year. So what are you doing? Are you bringing it in during the colder times of year or is it um, on the windowsill? Is that what you're doing? No, it's growing in the yard. It's growing in the yard. And rarely does it get cold enough to kill basil. Okay. It, you know, it slows it down some, but it seems to, you know, it seems to do just fine over the winter. You know, if it gets really cold, I'll throw a sheet over it. But, you know, right now it's thriving. Okay, great. Yes, so are mine. Uh, all right. So uh, what you had, you had a couple of tips you wanted to share. So that all was right. one. So the, so the other thing is, if you're new to gardening, even if you're not new to gardening, the first premise of permaculture is to observe. I tell people, spend at least a year observing your space before you make any major changes. Yeah. You don't want to make a class one error. That's what we call the major errors that are hard to fix <laughs> in your first year. The people across the street from me bought the house maybe 10 years ago, and there were these beautiful and beautiful grapefruit trees growing in the front yard, which was on the west side of their house. And they were 30 feet tall and they shaded the entire front of the west side front of the house. Within a week, they were there with chainsaws cutting them down. Oh they hadn't God. a clue what they were doing. Oh my God. Oh. So spend, an, spend a year on your property before you make any major changes. That doesn't mean don't put a garden in. It just pay attention to what's going on in your space. And then don't get discouraged. When people look at my property, I've been here 32 years. Something like what happens here develops over, you know, if, if I was going to do it again, I could probably do the same thing in 10 years. Mm -hmm. But it takes time. Your first year garden may not be your best garden. Right. Don't give up. Don't say, oh, it didn't work. I have a brown thumb. The only reason you have a brown thumb is because you think you have a brown thumb. And I promise, promise, promise you, maybe not for you, but for your listeners out there, I've killed more plants than you ever will. I have killed a lot of plants. And I right? like telling people that because then they don't, they feel, oh, oh human, Vindicated. right? Yeah, exactly. Right. It's just what happens. You kill it's some, you keep some alive. That's how it works. So nice. don't, don't get discouraged. Keep it up. Check out urbanfarm.org. We got classes and yeah, just, it, most of all, have fun. Make it fun. You know, Janice, uh, Janice is my uh, manager. She manages me and all that we do here in the urban farm. And she has this friend who has a granddaughter. And when the granddaughter was two, the granddaughter was out in her friend Raymond's backyard gardening. The granddaughter is now seven. She loves, loves, loves to garden. Gardening is all about what this seven-year-old is about. Just, you know, go out and love it. Go out and be with nature. I was doing yoga. I could go on forever. Sorry. <laughs> I was doing yoga. I do yoga in my front room of the house and I open the front window. And when I was doing uh, warrior one the other day in class, I was looking out the front window and the amount of pollinators was mind blowing. I saw literally hundreds of flying things that were flying around the fennel, the celery, the carrots and the brassicas that are all going to seed in my front yard. Yes. That is what they're for. Let them so, go to seed. Awesome. Yeah. 
Well, thanks so much, Greg, for sharing those great tips and for being a guest on the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast. Absolutely. And I'm looking forward to getting you on my podcast. Yes, I am looking forward to that too. Now, where should people go to find more information about the Urban Farm and all that it has to offer? Urban Farm U on Instagram, The Urban Farm on Facebook, uh, urbanfarm.org on uh, the web. And uh, our fruit tree, if you want to go specifically to our fruit tree page, it is fruittrees.org. Got it. That was, that was a cool one to get. That's a winner right there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Garden Nerds, you'll find links to the Urban Farm on gardennerd.com this week. We'll also share their social media feeds and links to some of the freebies you can get on their site. Of course, check out the other stuff too. That's it for this week. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Visit us for tons of free gardening information at gardennerd.com. Show your support for this podcast and the other free stuff on Garden Nerd by becoming a Patreon subscriber. You'll find us on Instagram and Twitter under GardenNerd1, on Facebook as gardennerd.com, and of course, our Garden Nerd YouTube channel. Happy gardening!